Maverick News presents The Rick Walker Show Defrag your mind Hello, Maverick family. Welcome back to the Maverick News Channel. Hello, new viewers from all over the globe. Great to have everybody back tonight. We have some cool stuff to share with you. Oh, boy. One of the channels is not firing. Don't know why. <laughs> of course. There's always some sort of a technical thing, right? Anyway, not a big deal. Not a big deal. That's because it is not added to the feed. That's why. Isn't that interesting? It's not added to the feed. Because we don't have any more space left. That's okay. We'll get back on there tomorrow night. That's a, a, a new platform for us, a Wimkin. So we're still experimenting with the feeds going out as an alternative to some of the censorship platforms. So I might as well just get to that right off the top. If you're watching, please consider moving over to Rumble and subscribing to us over there. That's, uh, that's a Going concern for us over on Rumble. So if you want to make sure you can always see us, that's where we will always be. We're on Twitter and Twitch and YouTube and Facebook and Odyssey and Wimkin. And then we have Rebroads on CloudHub. Oh, a bunch of other ones too. YouTube, BitChute. There's some other ones. I can't remember them all. But we're kind of getting to be all over the place. And that's okay. Tonight, the Department of Justice in the United States has laid charges after they claim they've they've stopped an assassination attempt on a US citizen who is also from India, and this is linked to a killing involving a Sikh, an Indian separatist, a Khalistani separatist from India in Canada some months ago um, or some weeks. Anyway, we'll have reaction from the foreign affairs minister in Canada on that. And... Um, also, the debate over inflation, economic policy rages again in the House of Commons in Canada as people continue to suffer through unprecedented inflation, unprecedented money printing, an unprecedented expansion in the money supply leading to higher prices. And we'll talk about that tonight. I know that many of you in our community right here, 
you know, you've been messaging me and showing me even images of what is in your refrigerators, which is not much simply because the cost of living has gone through the roof. If you can even afford a roof over your head. So we'll dig into that tonight. Also this evening, I don't know if we're going to get into the Sovereignty Act stuff out in Alberta or not. Don't know if we'll have time, but we will talk about the new deal the federal government in Canada has reached with Google surrounding their Online Streaming Act, which is the news censorship legislation that they imposed on the country. So we'll show you that. Um, Maui, they have a housing crisis down there that they are trying to address in the wake of the wildfire that killed so many people. And also tonight, we have something truly, 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 truly evil to show you. But it's so evil, it will make you smile. We'll, we'll save that one for the end of the broadcast. Evil. Truly evil. <laughs> okay, so let's, uh, let's take a quick break. I'll, I'll wind things up here. And we'll get right to it on the other side of this. Greetings, brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others out of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals, individuals, defenders of individual rights and freedoms, credible, trusted, grounded in reality. Maverick News. Maverick News. Defending free speech. Free speech. Donate at freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow. Maybe too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The world is watching. First up tonight, let's get right into this story about the alleged assassination plot. This is um, a story about an Indian national who is now facing murder for hire charges. This is um, an international case, obviously, and U.S. law enforcement officials are calling it an attempt to assassinate a U.S. citizen on U.S. soil with an alleged connection to an employee of the Indian government. So this is very similar to a story that we had erupt here in Canada. And I actually have the, the document from the 
Department of Justice right here. In the Southern District of New York. I'll add that to the screen there. So this is uh, the information they've released as of today. It says, uh, Indian government employee directed a plot from India to murder U.S.-based leader of Sikh separatist movement. Damian Williams, the United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, Matthew G. Olson, the assistant attorney general of the Justice Department's National Security Division, Ann Milgram, the administrator of the Drug Enforcement Administration, and James Smith, the assistant director in charge of the New York field office of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, announced the filing of murder for hire charges against Indian national Nikhil Gupta, also known as Nick, in connection with his participation in a foiled plot to assassinate a U.S. citizen in New York City. The charges are contained in a superseding indictment unsealed today in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. The case is pending before U.S. District Judge Victor Morero. Czech authorities arrested and detained Gupta on June 30th of this year, pursuant to the bilateral extradition treaty between the United States and the Czech Republic. Assistant Attorney General Matthew G. Olson said, quote, and this is in their release, the dedicated law enforcement agents and prosecutors in this case foiled and exposed a dangerous plot to assassinate a U.S. citizen on U.S. soil. The Department of Justice will be relentless in using the full reach of our authorities to pursue accountability for lethal plotting emanating from overseas. DEA Administrator Ann Milgram said when a foreign government employee allegedly committed the brazen act of recruiting an international narcotics trafficker to murder a U.S. citizen on U.S. soil, DEA was there to stop the plot. I want to recognize the outstanding work of the DEA New York Field Division for their leadership in this investigation. The prosecution team at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan for pursuing today's indictment. Um, FBI assistant director in charge, James Smith, said murder for hire is a crime out of a movie. But the plot in this case was all too real. The excellent teamwork of the law enforcement partners in this case exposed this brazen conspiracy. And is why Nick Gupta finds himself in jail waiting to answer to these charges. So. Says here. Gupta is an Indian national who resides in India, is an associate of CC1. That's the a reference to a government employee who is, whose name is being concealed. So they're just referring to the employee as CC1 and has described his involvement in international narcotics and weapons trafficking in his communications with CC1 and others. CC1 is an Indian government agency employee who has variously described himself as a senior field officer with responsibilities in security management and intelligence, and who also has referenced previously serving in India's Central Reserve Police Force and receiving officer training in battlecraft and weapons. CC1 directed the assassination plot from India. 
in or about May of 2023, CC1 recruited Gupta or to orchestrate the assassination of the victim in the United States. The victim is a vocal critic of the Indian government and leads a U.S.-based organization that advocates for the secession of Punjab, a state in northern India that is home to a large population of six, an ethno-religious minority group in India. The victim has publicly called for some or all of Punjab to secede from India and establish a Sikh government state called Khalistan. And the Indian government has banned the victim and his separatist organization from India. At CC1's direction, Gupta contacted an individual whom Gupta believed to be a criminal associate, but who was in fact a confidential source working with the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency, the CS, as they're referring to him, for assistance in contracting a hitman to murder the victim in New York City. The CS introduced Gupta to a purported hitman who was, in fact, a DEA undercover officer. And they've got all these UC, CC1, CS, <laughs> because they're not revealing the names. So it gets a little hard to follow who's who. But uh, basically, yeah, they've got a deal going here. Uh, Gupta arranged to uh, for an associate to deliver $15,000 in cash to the UC as an advance payment for the murder. CC1's associate then delivered the fifteen grand to the UC in Manhattan. In or about June 2023, in furtherance of the assassination plot, CC1 provided Gupta with personal information about the victim, including the victim's home address in New York City, phone numbers associated with the victim, and details about the victim's day-to-day -day conduct. While Gupta then passed to the UC, CC1 directed Gupta to provide regular updates on the progress of the assassination plot, which Gupta accomplished by forwarding to CC1, among other things, surveillance photographs of the victim. Gupta directed the UC to carry out the murder as soon as possible. But Gupta also specifically instructed the UC not to commit the murder around the time of anticipated engagements scheduled to occur in the ensuing weeks between high-level U.S. and Indian government officials. So the whole plot is laid out right here. Um, in or about June 2023, in furtherance of the association, Gupta, with personal information about the victim, including the... Oh, we've already done that. Okay, so on or about June 18th, Masked gunman murdered Hardeep Singh Najjar outside a Sikh temple in British Columbia, Canada. There's your Canadian connection. Trudeau then went and made a public uh, statement about that, then went over to India. And uh, as you know, the relationship between Canada and India since then has been, to say the least, strained. Najjar was an associate of the victim and like the victim, was a leader of the Sikh separatist movement and an outspoken critic of the Indian government. On or about June 19th, 2023, the day after the Najjar murder, Gupta told the UC that Najjar was also the target. And we have so many targets, he went on. Gupta also added that in light of Najjar's murder, there was now no, there was now no weed to wait. No, no need to wait, sorry on killing the victim. On or about June 20th, 2023, CC1 sent Gupta a news article about the victim and messaged Gupta, quote, it's a priority now. So Gupta is 52 years old of India and has been charged with murder for hire, 
which carries a maximum sentence, <coughs> excuse me, of 10 years in prison and conspiracy to commit murder for hire, which carries a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison. The maximum potential sentences in this case are prescribed by Congress and are provided here for informational purposes only, as any sentencing of the defendant will be determined by a judge. Mr. Williams praised the outstanding investigative work of the DEA's New York Drug Enforcement Task Force and the Counterintelligence Division of the FBI's New York field office. Mr. Williams also thanked the DEA's Special Operations Division, the DEA's Vienna County office, country office, the FBI's Prague country office, the Department of Justice's National Security Division, the Department of Justice's Office of International Affairs. It goes on and on and on. A lot of work went into this. And I should add this last line, which I think for legal purposes is important. The charges contained in the superseding indictment are merely accusations and the defendant is presumed innocent unless and until proven guilty. So this, of course, is getting a lot of attention in Canada tonight, as well as in the United States, in particular within Indian communities in both countries and around the world. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie in Canada on the hot seat during a news conference. She was uh, today at a NATO foreign minister's meeting. We can pick that post-meeting news scrum up right here, right now. And, oh, let me just get that queued up for you. And we'll get her reaction. Melanie Jolie, Foreign Affairs Minister of Wondering, uh, we saw today an arrest, or I should say an indictment in the United States of an Indian citizen, uh, Nick Gupta a drug trafficker, accused drug trafficker, an arms smuggler, in a plot to assassinate a Sikh U.S.-Canadian citizen. Um, can you tell us, first of all, is the U.S. maintaining your government abreast of these developments? And what is the significance of this unsealed indictment for Canada? Well, when it comes to what's happening in the U.S., I won't comment directly because, of course, uh, I respect the uh, the work that the American law enforcement uh, agencies are, are doing, and I respect also the independence of their legal system. What I can tell you, though, is that we stand by our own credible allegations that there was a killing of a Canadian on Canadian soil, uh, linking to uh, uh, Indian agents. Uh, so that's my first point. Second point is I've had numerous conversations with my American colleague, Secretary Blinken, on the issue that we were facing with India. Uh, and at the same time, uh, we call on uh, India to engage in our own, um, uh, in our own uh, investigation. Uh, and I think it is important that they do so. Uh, and uh, I'm also in contact with the Indian Foreign Minister Jashankar on this very issue. 
Thank you, Evan. We will now go over to Katie Simpson from CBC. Hi, I'd like to follow up on that point. Um, two questions here I'm hoping you can answer. One, has India cooperated at all with the Canadian investigation? And two, according to this indictment, um, all of the, in the American authorities were in contact with this person who is trying to carry out this alleged murder for fire, fire this murder for hire plot in in May and June of this year uh, before the killing that took place in Canada how is it that the Americans were able to prevent a, an alleged murder for hire plot but Canadian authorities were unable to so first Katie of course I won't comment the work that is being done by own our own uh, law enforcement agencies for two reasons the first one is I respect their independence we're a rule of law country and second, Minister LeBlanc is the minister that is in charge of public safety. Uh, but what I can tell you on the diplomatic impacts of our investigation uh, and also uh, what is going on in the U.S. is I have engaged uh, with my Indian counterpart on this very issue. We call on uh, their cooperation to make sure that our investigation is able uh, to um, to uh, uh, to proceed, and uh, also uh, I still think that uh, the uh, impacts of our uh, of making public our allegations and the fact that they've decided to remove diplomatic uh, immunities to 41 of our diplomats was completely unacceptable, and uh, uh, it is clearly my goal to make sure that the 41 diplomats that uh, should be right now working in in India are allowed back. Thank you, Katie. We can now head over. Okay. And it appears this is a picture of the man. This, I believe, is Nick Gupta. Just double checking some information here. So this is the man who is of extreme interest. Nikhil Gupta. So again, these allegations have not been proven in court. This is a developing story. We will continue to follow it. And we will be right back after this. Jingle bells. Trudeau smells. Biden laid an egg. Klaus Schwab's deal has no appeal. But tomorrow is a brand new day. Hey everyone, have a merry maverick Christmas and a magnificent new year. Yeah, try to have a merry Christmas. I know this year is going to be rough for a lot of people. Because the economy is in shambles. 
in many respects. For some, it's better than it is for others. But again today in the House of Commons, Pierre Polyev, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, came a-calling for Justin Trudeau, and he's hitting him hard on the economy again. And it's paying off because we have new poll numbers to share with you after sharing this with you now. This is the exchange today in question period. Oral questions, questions oral. The Honorable Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Never before have we had a Prime Minister who was so ashamed of his own economic update, and we now know why. Years after he said there would be no consequences from doubling the national debt, we now have a prime minister who's going to spend more next year on debt service than on health. Once again, why does the prime minister want to give more money to bankers than to nurses? The right honorable prime minister. Mr. Speaker, it would be more credible coming from the leader of the opposition if he hadn't spoken out against our historic deal to transfer $200 billion to the provinces over the coming years for health. We are here to invest in producing results for Canadians, but the Conservatives are just there for austerity and cutbacks. With respect to our economic statement, we've invested in housing, historic levels, We've, we're helping bring down grocery prices and we're investing in good careers in industries all across Canada. We will be there in a responsible way for Canadians. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Canadians who open their fridges only to find that there's no food in them and they have to go to food banks. After eight years of this Prime Minister... They're already experiencing austerity in their daily lives. And the Prime Minister wants to make things worse with another $20 billion in inflationary spending. He's increased inflation and interest rates at the expense of Canadians. Will he finally reverse his inflationary policies so that Canadians can eat? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker... I think the leader of the opposition's logic is a bit faulty. He rightly finds that Canadians are struggling to afford groceries, but he's proposing government austerity as the solution to help those families. But that's so far-fetched, Mr. Speaker. We are investing to help families. We're investing in housing. We're investing to bring down and stabilize grocery prices. We're investing in careers and jobs for the future. Meanwhile, the Conservative Party is voting against dental care for seniors, voting against assistance to companies that will help grow jobs. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. So ashamed of his own economic update that he wants to avoid talking about it for the week that follows. We can understand why. Next year, he wants to spend $53 billion on debt interest, a record-smashing amount that is higher than the amount we spend on health care. Works out to $3,000 for every Canadian family. According to BMO, excuse me, according to the Bank of Nova Scotia, this is going to increase 
interest rates by two full percentage points or $700 a year directly attributable to this government's deficit spending. So will he get a control, control of himself and control of his spending so Canadians can get control of their mortgage costs? <laughs> Mr. Speaker, I will admit openly to you and to others in this House that the media didn't cover our fall economic statement as much as we would have liked last week because they were so busy talking about what a terrible week the Conservative Party had on Ukraine, on allegations of terrorism, on attacking Stellantis and jobs in southern Ontario. Yes, the media were totally wrapped up in the Leader of the Opposition's terrible week. But we stay focused on investing in housing for Canadians, on stepping up on more competition to helping grocery prices and moving forward and creating great jobs and careers for Canadians for decades to come. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Well, maybe you should just give the media even more money to cover the news how we like it, Mr. Speaker, because we know he's so desperate, so desperate to debate me on the carbon tax, a debate he's been losing badly. Canadians overwhelmingly want him to axe the tax. That's why he panicked and flip-flopped to take the tax off for a short time, and only for those people who are in a region where he's plummeting in the polls and his caucus is revolting. With two million Canadians forced to go to a food bank, will he stop thinking about buying himself better news coverage and start thinking about the Canadians who have to buy themselves better food? The right honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, it's interesting to hear the Conservative leader again attacking the media, particularly on a day where we uh, stood up uh, and arranged a deal with Google to make sure that local journalism, that independent journalism, that the work that our news media is going to do is going to be able to stand the test of time through its transforming times we live in. The leader of the opposition continues to want to stand with big data, with internet giants, to sidle up to his billionaire buddies uh, down south. We're going to continue to stand up for local journalism, for the work that professionals do to support our democracy in small towns and communities right across the country. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition on the carbon tax because he knows that Canadians know they can't afford the cost of food as he intends to continue raising taxes and so instead he tries to distract with media buyouts and by censoring views of views with which he disagrees so will he have the courage to actually defend his carbon tax as two million people line up in bread lines like those we haven't seen since the Great Depression and will he support our common sense bill to axe the tax on the farmers that feed us? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, Canadians right across the country, including and especially our hardworking farm families, are seeing the impact of climate change increasingly every single year. It has become glaringly obvious to everyone, except for certain MAGA Conservatives, that the fight against climate change is a fight for the future of our economy. You cannot separate fighting climate change from growing good jobs and a strong economy into the future. And yet, that is exactly what the Conservatives continue to say. We put a price on pollution, we're putting more money back in Canadians' pockets, and we're creating great jobs for the long term. We're here. 
The Honorable Member for Belleville Chambly. Mr. Speaker, according to the media, the government is maintaining its refusal to launch a call for tenders for surveillance aircraft instead of a call for tenders, presumably on the basis of their analysis, uh, it, it will be uh, an American supplier. We've got nothing against Americans as long as it's fair. Have they ruled out uh, a call for tenders? Have they ruled out Bombardier? And have they ruled out Quebec, the Right Honourable Prime Minister? Mr. Speaker, in these uncertain times, we have two main priorities. First of all, we need to ensure that our armed forces have the equipment they need to do their job. And we also need to ensure that there are good jobs in the aerospace industry for Canadians all across the country. Those are our two goals, and that's what we will continue to focus on. The ministers concerned will be making an announcement uh, in due course. The Honourable Member for Belle Chambly. So we agree we need security for the armed forces and we need good jobs. Why rule out Bombardier? They can do the work. They're capable of it. This government is rejecting the modern Quebec and Canada in order to go with Boeing, the American company. We're not asking for preferential treatment. We're asking for a fair and equitable call for tenders. Will the Prime Minister step up as a statesman and say that what we read this morning is not true? There will be a call for tenders. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, our Canadian Armed Forces need the equipment to do the job of keeping us safe and we share our responsibilities with our allies to keep a, to protect a, a, a world, make it safer. And we need to invest in ways that will create good jobs and a good future for our aerospace industry in Quebec and all across Canada. Those are the priorities we share, and we will continue along those lines. The Honourable Member for Burnaby South. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Prime Minister promised to pass legislation within the first 100 days to protect Canadians from toxic online content and to hold platforms accountable. Last month, a 12-year-old in Prince George, 12-year-old boy, took his own life in response to online sextortion. It's been 764 days since the government has sworn in, and more of these incidents have been happening every year. When will the government introduce the online harm bill to protect kids? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, when it comes to protecting our kids, I think we all agree that we have to do everything we possibly can. And that is why we have spent such significant amount of time working with communities, including racialized communities, working with experts, moving forward in the right way to keep our kids safe uh, from online harms, to keep them safe in the virtual world that more and more of us spend increasing amounts of time. We need to make sure we get it right. We need to make sure we get it right, both for the grand principles of freedom of expression and uh, freedom of assembly that are so important uh, uh, in our democracies, but also make it right uh, for communities that are all too often subject to discrimination and marginalization. That's what we're going to do.
the Honourable Member for Burnaby South. Is causing harm to kids. We need action. Le président de la the president of COP28 is looking to make oil deals with Canada. The minister says their discussions were only about climate, but his department refuses to say who is part of the Canadian delegation until after COP28. Is the prime minister sending the minister of the environment to Dubai to commit to eliminating fossil fuels or to sign new operating contracts? The right honorable prime minister. Need to be careful about associating uh, a tragedy that happened in Prince George with actions or inactions of any particular government. We understand how horrific this is for the family, for the community, and we will continue uh, to work uh, to make sure that kids across this country are protected. And that is why we are serious about moving forward and protecting uh, from online harm. C'est un enjeu extrêmement sérieux. It's a very serious issue which we will always treat with the appropriate respect and responsibility. This is not, it's inappropriate to make accusations. This is a tragedy we all need to work on together. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Le Premier ministre M. A. B. The Prime Minister likes to shirk responsibility for having doubled the cost of housing over eight years. He's not worth the cost. So I will quote from Realtor.com in the U.S., in October 2023, this is the sixth consecutive month of lower rents. According to rentalspoint.ca in Canada, rents in Canada reached a new high. Why are rents dropping in the U.S. while they're going up more quickly more quickly than ever before in history here in Canada. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, we have launched our housing accelerator. We did that this fall precisely to create more housing in Canada and bring down rents for all Canadians. It's an issue that builds on things we've been doing since 2017 and even before to invest in housing in Canada. And we understand that there's much more to do. We have a population that is growing faster than in the U.S., but I'm sure that the leader of the opposition is not talking out against immigration right now. We will stay there to build more housing, to grow our economy, and to grow our population at the same time. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. The Prime Minister loves to blame others for the fact that he's doubled housing costs in eight years. He's not worth the price of rent. But let me quote and the organization Realtor.com in the United States. October 23rd marks the sixth month in a row of year-over-year -year rent declines. Rental.ca in Canada says, and I quote, for the sixth month in a row, asking rents in Canada hit a new high. Why, after this after eight years of this Prime Minister, is rent going down in the States and up in Canada? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, since 2015, we have been investing in housing in this country to make up for the 10 years of loss.
last time when uh, that minister, as I mean, that member as Minister of Housing uh, and a previous government, got out of the business of uh, building and supporting housing across this country. So we've done an awful lot, and we recognize there's more to do, which is why part of our fall economic statement was uh, in ab about investing even more in creating homes and unlocking the potential of this country. As for the difference between Canada and the United States, well, one of the differences, our population is growing much faster uh, than the population growth in the United States. But I'm certain uh, the leader of the opposition wasn't about to suggest he was anti-immigration because we all know immigration creates jobs and prosperity, and that's what we're all... The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. As the Prime Minister brought up immigration, I was about to point out that in Canada, according to his housing agency, home construction is down 32% year-over-year. And in the United States, it's up 5%. It is true the Prime Minister has much more expensive federal government programs to build more government bureaucracy and less homes. Will he adopt our common-sense plan to build homes, not just bureaucracy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, we all know the mistrust and the distaste the Leader of the Opposition has for expert analysis and expert uh, uh, advice. That's uh, particularly because the experts have roundly panned his approach on housing as not going to be able to create the housing that Canada needs. What are we doing? For example, concretely, we've talked about 9,000 housing units in Hamilton, 7,000 housing units in London, 44,000 housing units in Vaughan, 9,000 housing units in Halifax and more to be created over the next uh, few years. These are investments we're making that are delivering for Canadians right across the country while he continues to propose cuts and austerity instead of the investments that Canadians need. gives home building numbers. He's talking about promises that have not been realized. For example, he promised in 2015, eight years ago, that he would sell federal lands to build homes. Now, today, Radio Canada reports that it takes 23 years for the government to dispose of lands and turn it into new homes. In fact, one project won't be done until the year 2038. How many generations of Canadians would have to survive long enough for the Prime Minister to realize any of the promises that he makes? <laughs> Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, that underscores the importance of being able to work constructively with municipalities to build those housings. And those numbers from the City of Ottawa are something that we're concerned with and are going to be working uh, to make sure that they accelerate the construction of housing on federal lands. We are there for investing uh, in more housing. We are there to release federal lands for the construction of housing. But instead of doing what the Leader of the Opposition says and picking fights with the, with the municipalities, we will work with them to ensure that they are building faster. That's what our housing accelerator is all about, unlocking hundreds of thousands of new homes over the coming years. What he's actually done is unlock hundreds of new photo ops at the expense of, of, of Canadian taxpayers. So, for example, he's now given $15 billion to the renamed and recycled construction loan program. This is a program that has built less than half of its targeted promises and the new money 
that he says will build homes will arrive in 2025, the new homes in 2028. Wow. Mr. Speaker, how many times would this prime minister have to be reelected on his promises for housing for a new home to actually get built? Yeah. <laughs> the right honorable prime minister. Mr. Speaker, the irony is the leader of the opposition is attacking us for making announcements on thousands upon thousands of new units built across the country when he doesn't make any announcements at all because he has no plan. He is not sharing a plan to build more homes. He's not sharing a plan to invest in the economy. He is not sharing his approach on how to create more opportunities for Canadians while fighting climate change, while responding to the climate crisis. He just stands there and makes personal personal attacks and sneers at everything and says it's all broken instead of doing the hard work, rolling up our sleeves and delivering a real plan for the future of Canada. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. The problem is with this Prime Minister, the future never comes. <laughs> it's a promise that's always just around the corner. For example, his house, $4 billion housing accelerator has completed exactly zero homes two years after it was announced. And here's why. The other day he announced a bunch of money in Halifax. And where did the money go, according to the city? To hire 29 new bureaucrats. Wow. The same bureaucrats that are blocking the housing construction in the first place. Why doesn't he accept my common sense plan to require cities boost housing completions by 15% in order to get federal money so that we build homes, not bureaucracy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. I hate to break it to the leader of the opposition, but a TikTok video is not a plan. Uh, Mr. Speaker, we're going to continue to work, to roll up our sleeves and deliver for Canadians every step of the way. While the Conservatives are flip-flopping all over the place, refusing to stand with workers, refusing to stand with Ukraine, uh, watching too much far-right American TV, we're going to stay focused on delivering concretely for Canadians with the lowest deficit in the G7, the best debt to GDP ratio in the G7, the best AAA credit rating uh, of all countries around the world except for the top three uh, of which we're part. We're going to continue delivering for Canadians. The Honourable Leader of the Bloc Québécois. Hey. Hmm. <laughs> uh, so we we let that rule for a while and we touched uh, they touched on a few different things in the middle of that economic exchange um there was that reference to the sexploitation suicide and that is uh, about a story that broke was it two days ago I had it queued up that night and did not actually make reference to it. But what it was about was a, a young boy, 12 years old in British Columbia, who had engaged in some sort of online chat. And um, basically the young lad had been chatting with someone who was trying to take advantage of him 
and uh, it turned into a sextortion case where basically with sextortion, people are blackmailed for money or sexual favors. The, uh, the sextorter convinces the person to share a sexual photo or video. The interactions become more explicit, more dangerous. The youth then finds themselves in uh, a compromised position and um, threats are made to sort of release the information. And uh, the extreme embarrassment of it and the thought of maybe even getting into some kind of trouble was enough to result in the suicide of this young 12-year-old child out in Prince George, British Columbia. So police drew attention to this particular case. They're investigating it. Um, and they wanted to make the public more aware of this problem. But it's a growing issue online. And um, the number of sextortion cases in Canada, we're not exactly sure at this point how many there are. However, uh, there is a website out there called cybertip.ca. It's Canada's national tip agency for reporting online sexual exploitation of children. And it says it receives an average of about 50 sextortion reports every single week. Sextortion victims are overwhelmingly male. They range in age generally, on average, between 12 and 19 years old. And most incidents occurred um it most often happens on Instagram or Snapchat. And that's what Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, was talking about and challenging the prime minister on. Now, that's what he's calling for through this online harm bill, as he referred to it. <clears throat> so if you have kids, you know, you, you might want to check and see what's going on with their online activity to keep them safe. Because now predators don't necessarily need to have one-on-one -on -one contact or interaction in person. They can do bad things on the internet. So be aware. That's all I can say about that. And then we got back into the economy and the housing issue at the tail end of that exchange, Polyev rising again and taking it right straight to the prime minister. And Trudeau is, he's in trouble, you know. Um, if you look at the new polling that's out, and here I'll bring this up. The Conservatives in Canada have opened up a huge lead in public opinion. Check this out. Okay, here's the federal numbers right here in this field here on the um, on, with the Canadian flag over it. Conservatives ranking at 41% in this latest poll. 
41% support. The liberals have fallen back to 26%. Now, you just have to go back a few weeks, and they were just about even with the conservatives, just a little, maybe a little bit ahead. And now that's a huge lead. That would result in a majority conservative government if an election were to be held today. And you can see that it's fairly consistent across the country where you are seeing in Quebec looks like a fairly strong support for the Parti Québécois. These are provincial numbers though that I'm looking at. Um, but federally, yeah, you know, it's conservatives all the way. And you can see these numbers are pretty solid. So Trudeau and deep doo-doo. And you can also see that uh, the pressure for him to resign from within his own party is actually ramping up as well. Uh, let me see if I can find that for you here. I had it for you. Here we go. In fact, here's a, here's a headline. This one from CTV News. This is uh, an opinion piece, but this says Don Martin with Trudeau resignation fever rising. A conservative nightmare appears. He says, with speculation on the rise, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will follow his father's footsteps in the snow to a pre-election resignation. There was an interesting subplot to a bland news conference Tuesday. It took four cabinet ministers to deliver a rehashed how great they are list of government accomplishments insisted responsible for creating a low-debt, affordable nanny state, investor-friendly, supercharged economy called Canada, which lives mostly in their imagination. But the personalities involved were of greater interest than the policy pablum. It goes on. And what he's really saying here is you have these uh, four ministers all kind of trying to pump themselves up, puff themselves up in, uh, in the public eye to position themselves for a possible run at the leadership says three of the four ministers strutting their stuff are considered likely to enter a race to replace their current boss. The fourth could be a contender, but just doesn't know it yet. And who are they? You've got um, Sean Frazier. He's with the Infrastructure and Communities. And President of the Treasury. Board, Anita Anand, and you have Christian Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister, and Finance Minister, and then you also, she's, she has a dual role, and the Minister of Science and Industry and Innovation, Francois-Philippe Champagne. I don't think he's honestly strong enough. The other three... All contenders, all possibilities. Freeland being 
the strongest of the three, but don't always assume that that would be a done deal. There's a lot that goes into winning the leadership, backroom deals, support. It's just not that simple all the time when it comes to politics. Sometimes things that seem to present a clear path just sometimes don't. It depends on a lot of things. Okay, quick break, then we'll come back and we'll tell you about this new deal between the federal government and Google. Actually, no, we'll come back and we'll show you a little bit with, before we get to that, we're going we're gonna to show you Joe Biden and his Bidenomics update. So don't go away. The sharing of biased and false, false news has become all too common on, on social, social media. media. More alarmingly, some media in an ocean of lies a century deep, the truth awaits. Choose not the red pill. Choose not the blue pill. For both are an illusion. Discover the power of M. The power of individuality. We are mavericks. We are the way to the light. Fear not the storm. Join our quest for truth. Truth will set you free. Maverick News. The world is watching. Yeah, and um, we're going to take you. We've been talking about the economy. I'm telling you that we're getting, I'm getting messages from people who are saying they can barely afford to buy groceries. And it's uh, very concerning. And off we go now to Pueblo, Colorado, where sleepy Joe Biden <laughs> is about to saunter up to the podium and deliver some remarks on Bidenomics. Here we go. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the introduction. Governor Jared Polis, where's your Gumson? There you go. Gov, thank you. You're doing a hell of a job. You really are. For Colorado, and thank you for your leadership. And Nick, mayor, the mayor here. You know, I walked off. Stand up, Mr. Mayor, so they see you. 
I was on the plane. They came to meet me at the Air, at Air Force One. I'm on the plane. I'm on the phone talking with my national security team about the next tranche of prisoners being released. And I knew I was running late, so I came down the stairs of Air Force One and ran right to the car, ran right by the mayor, and everybody came to see me. Mr. Mayor, again, I want to publicly apologize for that. Thank you. And a good friend of mine, a guy who's been a great partner and a guy who is doing so much for this community, John Hickenlooper. Thanks for being such a great partner, John. I really mean it. I said there's one word. I was introducing John at, a, at another event. And I said there's one word that can describe John Hickenlooper. Most important word for an elected official. Integrity. He's a man of absolute total integrity. Thank you, John. And uh, chairman of SC, uh, CS Wind. Kim, where, where, where are you? He, there you go, man. Thank you. We've had more picture taken together lately that he's going to, probably going to hurt his reputation back home. But, but, but I am friends with your leader, Mr. Moon, you know, home. You know, we're, we're, we're good guys. Thank you for all the, and I want to thank all the tribal leaders for joining. All the tribal leaders are here. If you're here, you stand. Can I see? I don't know where you are. Maybe I don't, you're not here right now. And uh, to celebrate this historic investment, building a clean energy future made in America is part of the progress we're making growing the economy from the middle out and the bottom up, not the top down. Because when the middle class does well, everyone does well. We're investing in America. We're investing in Americans. And it's working. Since I took office, my investing in America agenda has led to manufacturing boom that's attracted over six $600 billion, $600 billion in private investment from private companies in America and around the world, manufacturing and industries of the future. When I took office, we set a goal to produce 100% carbon-free electricity by 2035. Because of my commitment to clean energy future, made in America, clean energy companies started investing here, here in Colorado. Here in Colorado, CS Wind, a Korean company, makes towers and wind turbines. I know you all know it. The people seeing this on television may not be certain. They used to make all their wind towers abroad. Then they decided to make them here in America as well. But today, CS Wind factory in Colorado is the largest wind tower manufacturer in the entire world. In the entire world. With over 870 employees. It's simple. As I've said for a long time, when I think climate, and I mean this sincerely, I think jobs, jobs. That's what climate's about. Not only saving lives and saving the environment, but jobs. But that's not the end of the story. I signed a historic law, the most significant investment combating existential threat of climate change ever anywhere in the world. It does many things, including provide incentives to make wind towers in America and bonuses for clean energy projects that use those American-made wind towers to power American homes. And because of my investment in America agenda, CS Wind plans to invest an additional, 200, an additional $200 million to expand the facility right here, another $200 million, doubling its production, and creating 850 more good jobs beyond what's going on. And because of the investment, and incentives we wrote into the law, CS Wind recently announced its employees will receive an end-of-year bonuses as well. It 
You can clap for that man. It matters. Like I said, when I hear climate, I think jobs. Here in Colorado, the wind turbine manufacturing business is, is investing $40 million to expand its factory and hire an additional 1,000 employees. Solar manufacturer Ber Meyer Berger is building a new solar cell factory just down the road in Colorado Springs. They'll create more than 350 new jobs themselves. And all across America, instead of exporting jobs, companies, both foreign and domestic, are creating jobs here in America and exporting American-made products. That's what we used to do 40 years ago. Through my bipartisan infrastructure law, we're also making most substantial investment in American infrastructure since President Eisenhower built the interstate highway system. We're investing in roads, bridges, ports, airports, clean water, affordable high-speed internet. Already, we've announced over 40,000 projects, 4,500 communities across the nation are benefiting. And from the new Amtrak tunnel in Baltimore to the Brent Spence Bridge in Kentucky to right here in Colorado, $5.6 billion in 304 projects. We're investing $160 million in 103 mile water pipeline known as the Arkansas Valley Conduit. It starts here in Pueblo. It'll bring water to 50,000 people across the southeastern Colorado. And that's not all. We haven't forgotten tribal lands here in Colorado. We're investing over $66 million in tribal lands here to ensure underserved Native American communities have access to affordable high-speed internet. The amazing thing is over 233,000 Colorado households already have a savings of $30 a month on their internet bills because of the affordable connectivity program. You know, and as part of my commitment to conserve and restore our country's lands and waters, my administration already conserved more than 21 million acres nationwide, including when I was here a year ago at the Camp Hill Continental Divide National Monument, a beautiful place that will never, ever, ever be built on in future generations. We're also bringing the summer semiconductor manufacturing back home. We invented the computer chip. We invented the semiconductor. All those computer chips smaller than the tip of your finger that affect nearly everything in our lives from cell phones to automobiles to refrigerators to advanced weapon systems. America invented these chips. But as time went on, we went from producing 40% of the world's chips down to just over 10%. That's why I designed and signed the Chips and Science Act. Because how can we remain the greatest nation in the world without leading the world in science and technology? How does that happen? We used to invest 2% of our gross domestic product in research and development as a nation. That's why we're leading the world. Over time, that went down to 0.7%. But we're changing that. Now, all over the country, semiconductor companies are investing literally hundreds of billions of dollars to bring chip production back home to America. In Colorado Springs, the company Microchip announced it would invest $880 million to expand their manufacturing capacity, creating 400 additional good-paying jobs in the semiconductor industry. And the fabs, that's what they call the factories they're building, these fabs 
they pay an annual salary over $100,000 a year. And guess what? You don't need a college degree to get the job. Folks, things are changing. We're also focused on growing the rural economy. Let me put this in perspective for you. Just four big corporations control more than half of the markets in beef, pork, and poultry in all of America. And because so few companies control so much in the market, if one of those processing plants goes offline, it's going to have a massive impact on the supply chain disruptions, slowing production, and costs farmers real big. Under my administration, Colorado received millions of dollars to strengthen and expand access to small, mid-sized meat and poultry processors. The big guys don't like it, but guess what? You have a guaranteed access. Having facilities close by means farmers and ranchers have a better shot at getting a fair price for their product. We're also helping farmers and ranchers deploy clean energy systems like solar panels on their farms and ranches, lowering energy costs and increasing, increasing their income. When farmers and ranchers do well, when the wealth they generate stays in Colorado, when their children can stay in Colorado, it builds a stronger rural economy. <laughs> now, new data released just today shows the investments we're making have spurred by the Inflation Reduction Act, which I wrote, which we passed, is going to communities historically left behind. Since I signed the law, 99% of clean energy investments in Colorado are in counties with average incomes below average, below medium household incomes. When I took office, I vowed I'd be president for all Americans, whether you live in a blue state or a red state, whether you live in rural Unless urban you're areas. Unless you're a Republican. And we're, de we're delivering on that promise. But folks, we haven't gotten a whole lot of help from some members of Congress on the other side of the aisle in the United States Congress. The historic investments we're celebrating today is in Congressman Boebert's district. <laughs> She's one of the leaders of this extreme mega movement. She, along with every single Republican colleague, voted against the law that made these investments and jobs possible. And that's not hyperbole, that's a fact. And then she voted to repeal key parts of this law. And she called this law a massive failure. You all know you're part of a massive failure? Tell that to the 850 Colorados who get new jobs in Pueblo and CS Win thanks to this law. Tell that to the local economy that's going to benefit from these investments. Tell that to anyone who wants to listen. Tell with thanks to Congressman, I think she, what she calls a massive failure solar power company that's investing $400 million here in Colorado, creating 50, for 56,000 homes, create 250 good paying jobs. Light Source BP is building a new solar farm just down the road from here to power an additional 53,000 homes. Across Colorado, Xcel Energy is investing $1.7 billion to improve the state's electric grid. Yeah. And folks, None of that sounds like a massive failure to me. How about you? I mean, it's crazy. This is an incredible opportunity. 
I got around the plant today to those who I got to talk to. You're changing America. You're changing America. It all sounds like a massive failure in thinking by the Congresswoman and her colleagues. Your Congresswoman also voted against the Chips and Science Act. And when she voted against the bipartisan infrastructure law, she called it garbage, a scam. As a matter of fact, the new Republican Speaker of the House, along with the Republican Congressman Vern Buchanan, just visited Sarasota, Florida yesterday to tour the construction of a new terminal at that airport. It's going to create thousands of jobs over time. The project is funded with nearly $30 million from the bipartisan infrastructure law. It's going to generate more than $30 million for Florida multiple times over. And guess what? Both the speaker and the congressman voted against the law and spoke against the law. But now they're down there taking credit for it being built. As my mother would say, God love them. As one of my friends back home would say, that's real chutzpah. That's real chutzpah. Meanwhile, my predecessor wants to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. Over 40 million Americans a day get their health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. His plan is to throw them off that plan. That would mean the number of uninsured African-Americans would go up by 20% or Latinos would go up by 15%. Folks, this, this is not your father's Republican Party. Like I said, I made a promise to be the president for every American. And keep, I'm keeping my promise. And just this morning, we learned that our economy, our economy, just this new data out, our economy grew by over 5% in the last quarter. That's more growth. That's more than the grew under my predecessor in any quarter outside the pandemic, despite promises of massive tax cuts for the wealthy and corporations would be what they said would supercharge the economy and trickle down to working folks. Not a whole lot trickled down in most kitchen tables I'm aware of. When I took office, since then, the first two years, we created over 14 million brand new jobs, good paying jobs. And nearly 250,000 of those good-paying jobs are here in Colorado alone. We've created close to, remember we're told we're not going to be the manufacturing capital world. How can we be the manufacturing capital world again? Well, we've created close to 800,000 manufacturing jobs, almost twice as many as the previous administration did in all four years. The unemployment rate has stayed below 4% for over 20 months in a row, the longest stretch in 50 years. And we've seen the highest share of working age Americans in the workforce in 20 years. And inflation is down. We have more work to do, but inflation is down at the same time. Core inflation is the lowest level in two years that we've had, the lowest inflation of any major country in the world. Let me be clear. Any corporation that's not passing these savings on to the consumers needs to stop the price gouging. And as my friend Senator Bob Casey from Pennsylvania calls it, Greedflation. American people are tired of being played for suckers. Look at all the hidden fees you have. You find out, you call up your bank and you want to find out what the balance in your account is. They charge you 20 bucks. I can go on and on and on. It's wrong. One thing I said after we passed all these major pieces of legislation, so the next big battle is going to be whether the very wealthiest among us began, and the biggest corporations, begin to start paying their fair share. 
I'm not talking about 80%, 70%, 90%. Talking about the highest tax rate in America is 38%, 36%. Let me be clear. The Speaker, Donald Trump, and the MAGA Republicans here in Congress committed to protecting their outrageous tax cuts for those at the very top. And they're going to continue to oppose investing in all those programs that help people, whether it's in education, healthcare, whatever. Okay, that's enough. Enough of Bidenomics. Blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> Blows my head up because I keep hearing such blah, blah, blah. And it's not just from him. It's from people like him. That just, it drives me nuts. couple of things I want to touch on now in response to the Bidenomics, nomics, nomics, nomics. Somebody sent me a video that also made my head blow up today. This was a, a TikTok video. It's getting a lot of traction, a lot of people watching it. And just like he's sitting there blaming the inflation that he created with all of his, his high spending and all of his money printing, just like Justin Trudeau, that's what causes inflation. <laughs> he's blaming it on companies price gouging. Oh, they're just charging too much money. No, it's that the actual cost of the items you're buying has increased because money is not worth as much because you've printed more of it. Supply and demand. If there's more supply of money, it becomes worth less. It's called scarcity. If things are more scarce, they're worth more money. If they're harder to come by, they become worth more. If there is more of, if there, if there's demand for it, if it, demand increases, it's just the supply and demand graph. Simple as that. And money is no exception to that. Anyway, this video today. <laughs> It's all about um, marketing boards. And I don't know who this fellow is. I'm going to run the video. And, and then I'm, I'm going to respond to it because it is the... <laughs> he tells you that it's a gr the greedy capitalist money grubbers <laughs> who are to blame for your high grocery prices and it's because they have a monopoly on certain sectors of the food agri industries like dairy like the dairy industry and he's so wrong he's sort of right but he's so wrong because he's pointing the finger at the wrong people and blaming the wrong people but people are going to buy this. I'm going to run this. Just I'm just telling you, as you watch it, watch it with extreme skepticism because what he's doing is he's giving you an assessment that is way off base. Way, way, way off base. Um, not to be, I don't know if he's just not, I don't know if he maybe just doesn't understand how economics works. Let me find this clip for you. I believe we have, here it is here. Okay. Maybe it's not his fault. Maybe he just doesn't know. I'll, exp I'll 
It's a teachable moment. Okay. Canadians, I'm going to blow your mind. I'm sure a lot of you have seen this comparison. We're in Canada. We're paying $13 for the same amount of chicken that costs about $3.50 in the U.S. And the answer is actually quite simple. We have permitted and allowed monopolies in Canada. Let me repeat that. Just like how OPEC controls the majority of the oil in the world and they control the world's oil prices, Canada has major monopolies in Canada that are allowed by the Canadian government that control the prices of dairy, chicken, and eggs. That's right. There's no competition. They set the supply, they set the price, and you pay the big bucks. Here's a quick chart that summarizes everything. You'll notice that Canada's prices in the chicken to soybean meal price ratio keeps going up while the U.S. keeps going down, which is where you get this massive price difference. I'm not making any of this stuff up, and I'm going to show you from every website. This one's from the Chicken Farmers of Canada, where they talk about supply chain management. And basically, mm -hmm. it's an approach where they control the supply and thus control the amount of yeah. price that you ultimately pay for your chicken. They have three main pillars that they operate with. One is the production planning pillar, which basically yeah. says this is how much chicken we're gonna produce. The next pillar is import controls. And that basically says that they get to control how much gets imported into the country. And as you can guess, they don't want prices to get cheaper. They don't wanna flood the market with too much product unless they absolutely need it in order to meet the quotas to keep the prices to where they want them to be. The last one is the producer pricing pillar, which basically determines how much the producer will get to earn. And it's not just them. The dairy farmers and egg farmers of Canada go through the exact same thing where they get to control the quantity and the price. It's not perfect competition. That's why we pay so much more for groceries. This is actually one of the best articles I've come across that explains the whole scenario. And it was actually written in 1982. It's phenomenally well-written. It's extremely long. It's by a think tank based out of DC called the American Enterprise Institute. They basically outline how these marketing boards work. What's mind-blowing is the fact that they actually are exempt from Canada's antitrust statute, which is the Combines Investigation Act. It sounds like a complicated term, but basically what antitrust means is monopolies, monopolies that get to control full market power. And that stuff is forbidden and prohibited in Canada. It includes misleading advertising, bid rigging, price fixing, and other means of limiting competition which is exactly what these are designed to do. Now, this is from the Egg Farmers of Canada website. Now, this is from the Egg Farmers of Canada, which is almost verbatim exactly the same strategy in the three core pillars that the chicken farmers of Canada have. And you'll notice all their logos are actually in the bottom here of the website, the Chicken Farmers of Canada, Dairy Farmers of Canada, Egg Farmers of Canada, and I believe that's the Turkey Farmers of Canada as well but they're all based on the three fundamental principles of production management, import controls, and producer price. It basically tells you they get to control how much gets made, how much, if anything, gets imported, and what the price is, which is exactly how a monopoly behaves. And again, this is from the Dairy Farmers of Canada talking again about supply management. I'm not sure if you remember this story of this farmer who filmed himself dumping 30,000 liters of excess milk he had to in order to keep the prices of milk high. The crazy part is, is based on rough estimates, it's roughly believed that Canadian dairy farmers dump up to 300 million liters a year in Canada, uh -huh. all to keep the prices high for you. Right. When the Canadian Dairy Commission was asked for an exact figure, they could not say, and they would not say. Now you have an understanding why you're paying all-time high prices for some of the basic necessities you need, including milk, chicken, and eggs. 
It's all because it is run as a monopoly in Canada and it is completely allowed by the government. And when they have the possibility and the ability to make prices cheaper, they would rather dispose of all that milk instead of passing any cost savings to you so they can keep prices and their profits high. So he's blaming greedy capitalists. But he's blaming the blame is misplaced because I just want to just reach inside and just squish my brains when I listen to people who don't understand. We have marketing boards in Canada set up by the government. It's not a free market. It's a managed market. The government controls all of it. The government dictates how much these farmers are allowed to produce. This is not a monopoly. This is socialism. Hardline, centrally planned, economic socialism. That's what it is. It's not the free market. It's not capitalism. It's a government-controlled industry. All of that. Dairy. A lot of farming. Farmers, a lot of them support it. Some of them do not. It's an economic, political issue. It has been in Canada for a very long time. That's why Maxime Bernier left the Conservative Party. He wanted to do away with the marketing boards. That he lost. The leadership of the Conservative Party by 1% on that very issue. Because Andrew Scheer had the backing of the dairy cartel, the farmers who support marketing boards. It's not capitalism to blame for your high grocery prices on those products, it's the government, it's the socialists. The thinking is that Canadian farmers can't compete with foreign competition. So the first thing they do is they impose excessive tariffs so high at the border that U.S. producers, if they try to import milk into Canada, the milk is just too expensive so people wouldn't buy it because they're essentially a tax at the border for that coming in. So that eliminates any foreign competition, no foreign milk. So it's only domestically produced that's allowed into essentially the grocery stores. Plus they can put non-tariff barriers into place as well with different kinds of regulations on quality control or packaging or whatever it might be, or even the way, you know, you have to have metric on the, on the, uh, uh, on the packaging, you know, how many milliliters or liters versus ounces, right. Or gallons. So they can create non-tariff barriers to entry into the market that way too. It's the government 
that has done this to people and has been doing it for a long time in this country. That's why you pay so much for milk. Then they impose quotas. If you are a dairy farmer, you are only allowed to produce so much milk. You are simply not allowed to produce any more beyond that. That's why they end up dumping the excess milk down the drain. We have starving people in other countries and they dump it down the drain. The government makes them do that. If they don't, they'll get fined. They will let people starve in other countries. They'll make you pay more at the grocery store on purpose. And dump the surplus down the drain. You see, if they produce more milk, the price drops. That means people consume more. Lower prices, higher consumption. It makes it more affordable. People will buy more if the price is lower. If the price is higher, they buy less. Why does the government do this? The farmers who support it, the government bureaucrats who support it, the politicians who support it believe that in order to have a stabilized industry, they want to keep prices artificially high so that the farmers, the producers, make a stable income. They don't want the chaos of the market. They don't want excessive competition. So they protect the farmers. And those who are in the business, they get their quotas. They get to stay in business. They pick those guys as winners. You, you, get, the, you get your quota, you win. But you're only ever going to make so much money. You're capped. You'll never make more than you're making right now because in real terms because the government will not allow you to make any more than that you'll have a stabilized cap you'll have a stabilized income because they're only going to supply the market with so much and you're only going to get so much for your milk but you're going to get above what the true market value is for your product and if you produce if your cows produce more you just dump it by dumping it, you force the price up higher. But that's not the free market. That's not capitalism. That's a marketing board. That's government. The government imposes all of those rules in order to jack the price up. To and they get this, they're basically buying the votes of that powerful farm lobby by doing that. They say, you vote for me, we'll give you a marketing board. We'll make sure that the prices are jacked up. We'll prevent other farmers from coming in to, to compete with you. We'll prevent foreign farmers from competing with you. We'll make sure that you get paid above market value for your product. It's a pretty sweet deal if you've got government permission to produce. But if you want to get into farming, you want to start a farm, if that's been your dream all your life, you ain't doing it. You're not going to do it because you're not going to get the quota. If you want to make more money, if you have the capacity at your farm to produce twice as much milk, you ain't going to do it because you're just going to have to dump it down the drain. And if you're a consumer like me, you're going to go to the grocery store. You're going to pay whatever the going rate is. It's just that's that's what you pay. 
like it or like it or not, like you're you're paying it. Meanwhile, the, the the farmers who have the quotas, they drive around in their newer cars, their you know hundred and twenty thousand dollar F one fifties, and you can barely afford to put the milk in your fridge. Like today, I won't tell you who sent me a photo. Opened their fridge. They had like five things in their fridge. Five things. They went to the grocery store. That's all they had in their refrigerator today. Five things. And it cost them like 50 bucks. It was like a thing of yogurt and, you know, like just enough to just maybe survive. That's not acceptable. That's what's going on. It's not just the money printing. It's also these powerful farm lobbies like the dairy cartel jacked up by these socialists. And then, you know, I'm sorry, but um, my utopian loving rose colored glass socialist friends, I'm sorry. I don't agree. It's not right. And then we get these guys on here saying, look what I discovered. There's a monopoly. It's not a monopoly. That's a government-run social program for farmers. Champagne socialists, because those farmers make a very good living. They have large-scale operations, and they, they do okay. They do just fine. If you've got the quota, if you don't have it, you're not, you have to go do something else. The government gets to pick who gets the, who, who wins and who loses. They, the, there's no free market at all. So to sit there and blame it on capitalism, is, it's a, it's a lie. It's a gigantic lie. They keep doing that to people. They've done it through history. And there it is again. The government creates the problem. Then they come along with a solution that just exacerbates the problem. Well, we had economic policies that made, made it almost impossible for farmers to survive. So we're going to just impose like complete government control now. And uh, yeah, so that means that some guys will make a lot of money and uh, everybody else will make nothing. And um, consumers will pay through the nose and you won't be able to afford your groceries. That's the solution. That's the socialist way. And that's what we have in Canada. So you're paying, what did he say, 13 bucks? I don't, I don't dispute his numbers. I don't dispute the graphs. I don't even dispute anything else in the video. What I dispute is blaming capitalism or free markets or big companies, greedy capitalists. No, there's nothing greedier than a champagne socialist feeding at the public trough at your expense. Nothing greedier. Nothing greedier than a fat cat socialist feeding at the public trough at your expense. That's the true nature of socialism. Everything else they tell you is a damn lie. And then they sit there and say, you've been lied to. That's why I keep telling you folks, don't take the blue pill. Don't take the red pill. 
They're lying to you both ways. They create the problem. Then they come along, give you a solution, a socialist solution that is nothing but making the problem worse. <laughs> okay. The government was the damn problem to begin with. Then they come along and say, well, we've got a big problem. Uh, must be capitalism. Uh, so we'll just give you even more government when the problem was government all along. And that is a perfect example. And I, we've laid it out here before. Okay. Open your eyes. Stop listening to people who don't understand anything about economics. <laughs> Telling you, trying to educate you on economics. Everything in that video is basically true, except that he's pointing the finger of blame in the wrong direction. The opposite direction, which is the oldest socialist, communist, fascistic, trick in the book free markets they ought to give it a try <laughs> instead of not doing it and then blaming the free markets on it <sighs> free markets would give you competition competition would result in more production that would mean more people would get fed prices would come down it, there would be opportunities for more people to actually make a living in addition to that, the farming community might ultimately, probably would, ultimately in Canada, the farming industry would probably prosper more. Because if they got rid of the marketing boards, dropped the tariffs, entered into new agreements with the United States and other countries where we could not only, where we would open certain areas of our economy to more trade with them, our dairy farmers who clearly have the technology and the best practices available to produce far more. They have so much more capacity that they could tap into to produce far more milk that we could be exporting that to other countries to feed hungry people and make the world a better place for all. But socialism isn't about utopia. For all, it's about apparently economic utopia for the chosen few. It's a lie. Jingle bells. Trudeau smells. Biden laid an egg. Klaus Schwab's deal has no appeal. But tomorrow is a brand new day. Hey everyone. Have a merry maverick Christmas. And a magnificent new year. You know, Biden was talking about um, energy. He was talking about wind and solar. And, you know, oil is still at the heart of everything, isn't it? It seems to be at the heart of what's going on out in the uh, Middle East, in Alberta, and in the United States, where there's so much um, opposition, it seems, to things like 
pipelines. Hmm. Came across something kind of mysterious. I'm going to need your help. Going to need your help, folks. Came across something. And this, this masked man seems so familiar and yet so anonymous. And I'd, I'd really like to, to know if anybody out there maybe recognizes this gentleman. Let me bring this up because I'm working on a story. I've got it all pretty much mapped out. And it kind of ties into some other stuff. And I just, you know, it's just, it's, it's just gnawing at me. I, I just can't quite put my finger on it. Can't put my, put my thumb on it. Who is this masked man? Who is that? Who might that be? <sighs> any, any wild guesses? Any wild guesses who that might be? Any, but I don't know. Looks very familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't he look familiar? Can't quite. Ah, who might that guy be? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting, isn't it? I've been sitting on this for a while, and you know, it's just been, I've been racking my brain. I've been doing facial recognition in my head. There's a lot more to that than just the picture. I've been just sitting on it for quite a while now. Yeah. Might have something more to say about that in the days ahead. So I just thought I'd throw it out there. See if maybe somebody recognized that gentleman. Anyway, let me know if anybody knows who this anonymous person might be. Just leave it up there for a little longer. Just so you can get a good gander at him. Yeah, we're just trying to ID this mystery man. The man behind the mask. Well, who would that be? Interesting. It's a and it's a it's a strange time. It's a time of half truths. Outright lies and deception. <laughs> yeah, there's an old saying, you know. Uh, lawyers use it a lot. As a journalist, I try to... Uh, to make use of it too in real real ways which is to say uh, don't ask a question unless you already know the answer <laughs>
the sharing of biased and false, false news has become all too common on, on social, social media. media. More alarmingly, some media in an ocean of lies a century deep, the truth awaits. Choose not the red pill. Choose not the blue pill. For both are an illusion. Discover the power of M. The power of individuality. We are mavericks. We are the way to the light. Fear not the storm. Join our quest for truth. Truth will set you free. Maverick News. The world is watching. Google. <laughs> They've reached a deal with the federal government on uh, Bill C-18, the Online Streaming Act in Canada. Um, so they're going to see here what's going to happen is Google will pay $100 million annually to publishers. And they will still allow access to Canadian news on their platforms. So the good news is, looks like they won't, <laughs> they won't just stop letting you see what we do here, the way Facebook has, um, on, on our news page. What a weird time. Um, so at least they they won't just get rid of news on YouTube. So Canada's heritage minister says that this is a historic development and uh, they were negotiating with Google. Now they've got a deal. It comes just ahead of the actual implementation where Bill C-18 is going to become, it's going to like take effect essentially, right? And then I don't really, I still don't really understand how this money will be split up and who will actually have access to it. Certainly the legacy media outlets will get a big chunk of this money. Um, but as for smaller independents, I don't know. I don't know. It's still not clear based on everything that I've been seeing. Uh, if any of the independent outlets will get any of the money, like I can't imagine that the government of Canada will give say rebel news access to any of that, that fund any of those funds just can't see it they'll say it's not really news and i i seriously doubt they would allow us to have access to any of it honestly not that i really want it um because i don't want to compromise my integrity and uh, i don't want to be controlled so in advance of the whole deal, Google indicated that barring adjustments to the proposed federal regulations underpinning the new rules, um, that they would follow Meta's lead and remove links to Canadian news content 
from not only YouTube, but also from their search engines. So it looks like, you know, they put some real pressure on the federal government. Could you imagine? <laughs> uh, we're not, we're not going to index any news. Um, nope, not going to even index it on the search engine. So I think the federal government did back down quite a bit on this. 100 million overall um, seems to me like they've, they've dialed it back a bit. But uh, <laughs> uh, but the federal government is saying they actually didn't make any concessions. I don't believe it. Don't believe it at all. And, you know, mainstream legacy media, they're, they're struggling just to, just to keep the lights on. They can't get it figured out, man. They really can't. It doesn't matter whether it's here in North America or overseas. I know the BBC, for instance, is, you know, they're huge. They don't want to give up their stranglehold on, on uh, their audience. But even they're faltering. They can't, they can't seem to get it figured out can't get it monetized and it's just because they're facing so much online competition but they're just not also giving the public what the public wants which largely is the truth instead of propaganda now there's plenty of propaganda to go around and i'm seeing it all over the place but we've seen it's it and it isn't just you know that it's like it's not cost effective it's it's very costly to cover news especially local news in a lo in a small town and if you are trying to do it with a small newspaper in the face of in, in a digitized era like good luck we still have a small town newspaper here where i live uh, and I, I'm certain that they struggle. They, they have some ad revenue coming in, but I know that they're not making a, like a billion dollars. It's tough out there, man. And if you're trying to make a living as a journalist doing local news, especially local news, it's tough because you've got a very concentrated, small audience and it's hard to monetize that, especially online. It's, Super tough to just even keep the lights on here. And that's why I'm so grateful, actually, for your support. And I see that we, I did have Shelby just uh, donated in, uh, in the Rubble Rants. So thank you for that. Truly appreciate that, Shelby. And uh, yeah, really, really appreciate that donation. That will help more than you know. And there were a few people who donated a little bit last night, and I'm grateful for that too. I didn't, um, I don't, I can't see the chat in Rumble all the time. I have to actually flip screens to, to actually go over there, and I can't stay there because I have to run, you know, all the switching and stuff for the program. But last night, I know that we had Emiral and Rosemary and David and Chesco. You guys all donated. And I'm extremely grateful for that. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Because it does cost a fair bit to do all the stuff that we do here. Yeah. Even just being on some of these platforms, they actually charge us a fee, including Rumble. They charge us a fee. 
So it's just every time you turn around, we're getting nickel and dimed and that's just the way it is out there. And I know it's extremely tough for a lot of people. And if you can't afford it, do not donate. Go buy your groceries. Don't send it here. Because I know what the cost of milk is and it is crazy. It's crazy. And look at the price of chicken. You know, what costs like three sixty or whatever he said in the U.S., $13 and change here in Canada. And I've been to the grocery store of late. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you're looking at. It's just so much more expensive. Especially meat. I, I went by the meat aisle the other day and it was just, I don't know how people can buy, can afford it. You know, I just, I just don't know how a lot of people can afford to get by. It's just, it's, it's, inexcusable something has to be done modern monetary theory just print 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 that's a tax on you on all of us money printing inflation it's a a, a different way of taxing you massive shift of wealth actually is what it is that's what we've had and uh, i'll have more more to say about that Maybe tomorrow night. Um, what else do we have on tap here for you this evening? Coming up on 8 p.m. Okay, so let's update the situation in uh, the Middle East. So an American citizen is among the hostages freed by Hamas today truce between Israel and Hamas has actually expired, but there are talks still ongoing to possibly extend the pause in fighting that would allow for the release of more hostages on both sides. And I know that people are playing word games saying, Israel has hostages, Palestine, the Palestinians are prisoners, the Israelis are hostages, whatever. God. Yeah, well, I don't know what planet people woke up on the other day where people suddenly seem to find excuses for taking children and elderly people hostage. Well, that's okay for them to do that. It's okay because, you know, like they're the ones being oppressed. Whatever. I don't think so. Okay. I just, I just don't think so. Um, anyway, they're hoping that they can extend this pause and fighting for maybe another couple of days at least, but we'll see. Um, we know that an American-Israeli dual citizen who had been held in Gaza was among the hostages free today. She is now the second U.S. citizen that has been released since this temporary ceasefire began. Also today, Israel's military indicated that it is looking into Hamas's claim that the youngest hostage held in Gaza, 10-month-old Kiefer had been killed along with his four-year-old brother, Ariel, and their mother, Shiri Bibas. 
Hamas has said the three hostages, some of the most prominent faces from this conflict, had been killed in an Israeli bombardment. Um, so that's getting quite a bit of media play. And Israeli forces did confirm that they carried out a raid on the Jenin refugee camp in the occupied West Bank. They say they killed two senior militants. This is just ongoing. More than 1.7 million people have been displaced in this conflict in Gaza. And again, I'm not putting much stock in any of the numbers that are being thrown around here on either side. Just not, uh, not buying it. So, I don't know, a lot of propaganda, a lot of, uh, a lot of posturing. And I think people need to understand that, you know, the reason this conflict keeps dragging on for generations and why there's no easy solution to this is because it isn't just about that little strip of land. It just isn't. It's about more, so much more. It's about religion. And well, you're, you and I are sitting around trying to think about this and analyze it from a position of logic. It isn't based entirely on logic because it's about religion. And then overlaid on top of that, there are political aspirations, political ideologies, and geopolitical goals by players from all over the world. So you have the stresses that might result in a third world war all there. It's a powder keg. It isn't just about that strip of land. It's also about exactly what I was talking about. Capitalism versus socialism, communism versus fascism, which I don't want to kind of get into it tonight. But you've got, you have all those factors coming to bear right there in the Middle East. It's not just about the strip of land. If it was just about the land, I think you would probably be, they probably would have had a, a solution that would have been workable a long time ago. But it isn't. It isn't. It's not. Religion and politics. Meshed. You're seeing a rekindling of old conflicts. Go back a long way. Reconstituted with uh, rebranded and even kind of reworked political ideologies and alliances shift over time. And some of this stuff people can't make sense of because you're seeing alliances shift, things that don't seem to make sense. You really need to 
<laughs> but it does make sense. It does. It does. We'll talk about it in depth another night. Just to be aware that it's not just about the strip of land. It's about uh, world domination. And the quest for that by various players. Various players. So there's all that. And what else do I have for you this evening? Um, I want to get to the evil story so bad. The evil story. It's so evil. <laughs> Not evil in the evil sense. It's evil in another sense. Oh, did you see that Vivek Ramaswamy's political director has jumped over to the Trump campaign? True story. His national political director um, is going to leave the campaign this week to go work for President Trump's re-election campaign. His name is Brian Swenson. And uh, he was a part of Ramaswamy's New Hampshire team. And uh, I guess he's playing an active part in the campaign's um, efforts all across that state. But he uh, he's, changed, he's changing teams. So... We're being told that it's all amicable. Everything's cool. He's leaving on good terms. He's going over to work for Trump. But what does this say? What does this tell me? Hmm. Well, it's only surface level information that I have. I have no inside scoop on what's going on in the Ramaswamy campaign. I don't have any special friends in there or anything. So, you know, I'm only privy to the same information you have, which is just news stories online. But what am I getting out of it? I'm thinking he's probably the front runner. Ramaswamy is the front runner and the best probable VP running mate for Trump. I said that before I said he was, you know, in the, in, uh, in his, in the debates, you could tell that he was like, you know, he wasn't going to criticize Trump too much. He's trying to position himself to be Trump's running mate. So much so that he's allowing his campaign team to go over and help Trump out. You watch. Now, that's not a guaranteed thing because there's still a lot of ground to cover between now and election time and the announcement of running mates. But, but, that's what it says to me. There's a lot of back and forth going on between those two campaigns. So they're friendly. They're friendly, and Ramaswamy, I would say, is the top contender right now. And uh, I can think of a bunch of strategic reasons why that might be the case, but not a lot of point in hashing it out here because so much can change so quickly in the world of politics. How about what's going on in Maui? Well, the mayor there is... Um, trying to address a housing crisis that they're still wrestling with following the wildfires in Lahaina. So the mayor, Richard Bison, is hoping to incentivize short-term rental owners to use their units 
to provide temporary housing for the victims of the wildfires. He's actually proposing um, new laws or policies through a, a new bill, which if enacted would amend the county code to exempt short-term vacation rentals, timeshares, non-owner occupied housing from paying real property taxes while they rent to local residents who have been displaced as a result of the wildfires, which took place back in August, as you all know. And if they don't use their rental properties under these new rules to house people in need who have been displaced and their properties are worth over a million dollars, they'll face increased property taxes. So according to government officials there in Maui County, there are between 2,500 and 3,000 timeshare units, 12,000 to 14,000 non-owner occupied homes, and somewhere between 12,000 to 14,000 short-term rentals in Maui County alone. Over in Lahaina, which is where the wildfires destroyed those homes and took so many lives, 25% of housing units are listed as short-term rentals. And research from the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization um, is where those numbers come from. To the south of Lahaina, the percentage drops or jumps to 41.8%, jumps to... Anyway, they're giving a bunch of numbers here. You're getting the idea. They want to use these rental units, which are normally used for tourists, essentially, to house local residents first and give them priority at lower rates. Because, of course, with increased demand for housing, the prices would go up. But I think what you're looking here is that here is a government effort to regulate or control pricing in the face of an emergency. So the displaced families have been complaining about skyrocketing housing costs and say that they have been experiencing what they say is price gouging. And in a situation like that, of course, you're going to see gigantic increases in, in rentals and pricing. And yeah, some price gouging, of course, because you're going to see some, some people try to take advantage of that situation rather than do the philanthropic and humane thing and just extend a helping hand to somebody and charge them a fair rental rate. Um, which ultimately, you know, even in a free market, that kind of gouging is uh, frowned upon. And people who do that kind of thing, you know, I think they generally end up getting, uh, uh, there's a, a real distaste that is left in people's mouths and it comes back to uh, haunt those who seek to harm others through economic exploitation in the long run. Sometimes it just takes a little time for that stuff to shake down. Anyway, that's what's going on in Lahaina. So 
What else do I have for you? Okay, can I get to the evil story now? Please, can I do the evil story? Or have I covered everything off? I don't know if this evil story is... I don't know if it's evil. I don't even know if it's news. But somebody sent it to me, and I got one heck of a kick out of it. So I'm going to share it with you when I come back right after this. Don't go away. Do you want to see the Christmas promo again? Or is it just too corny? I like it. Somebody's saying Ireland story? Ireland story? I don't know. I'll check the Ireland story. I'll run the promo. And uh, I'll run the promo and then we'll come back. And while, while the promos are running, I'll see what's going on in Ireland. Is there something going on in Ireland? I don't know. Okay, so yeah, I found a thing out of Ireland. And uh, what else would it be? Protests. I don't have all the details here, but I do have video. So we'll run that. Here's what I'm seeing. Now you're seeing it too. So, obviously, that's going to be something related to immigration. Mm -hmm. And we've seen... Uh, Conor McGregor in recent days called up on uh, being investigated for hate speech for his comments about the uh, stabbings in Dublin. And here's a post from Catholic Arena, which says Spanish Catholics defied threats of arrest from the socialist government to sing Sol Regina and pray the rosary tonight. I see. That was in Spain. Um, so yeah, that's Ireland. And here's 
here's something else. These are other pro these are pro-Palestinian protests out of Ireland. This just posted. Here's some photos. Dublin, Derry, Omagh, a whole bunch of different Irish towns, Belfast, Lifford, Newry. And splashes of green everywhere. I don't know. I don't know, folks. Um, I got to get to the, I got to do the evil thing. I got to do it. Okay. Got to do the evil thing. Okay, let's hear. Okay, let me bring it up. Okay, so somebody sent me this, and this is just, <laughs> I love it. Who remembers Evil Knievel? I do, I do. Who remembers Evil Knievel? I do. Well, somebody sent me this. 1976. Local news report. And this is... July 5th, 1976. This is Terry Evil Knievel. And he's going to do an amazing jump. This originally was broadcast on WRTV, a local television station in whatever town this is. Let's see here. I'm going to check that out. Where is WRTV? WRTV is in Indianapolis. Okay. <laughs> I love this. Every kid did this, but not to this, ex not to this degree. Terry is one brave young lad who today would be an old dude, just like me. And, uh, he's, he was a lot braver than I was. I did a little bit of evil can evil jumping in my day, but not like Terry. Here's Terry back in 1976. And, uh, boy, Things are sure different today. Watch this. They can talk and walk. And I think that must be youngsters that know what they want to do in life from the time they can talk and walk. And I think that must be true of 13-year-old Terry Evil Knievel Bollinger, who set aside today to prove to all he could jump over 10 trash cans with his Junker Special. Terry has worked and planned three years to reach the 10 trash can moment very intently the past six months. Last week, he jumped eight cans. His crew, three buddies, and his brother worked until six this morning getting his bike in shape. The bike? Oh, nothing too special. Made from the parts of several other bikes with special balloon tires. I'm told the special tires help break the fall in the event of a nosedive. There was a small, dedicated few on hand for the great moment. Mom, Grandma, and neighborhood friends. Terry, now wearing his orange jumpsuit loaned to him by his mom, set psyche himself up while the crew worked diligently setting up the jump. Mom on the sidelines, camera in hand. And of course, the media waiting for this moment of drama on the southeast side of Indianapolis to take place. I'm so excited. The suspense is killing me. Just getting me. yourself tested up, is that right? Yeah. How's it going to look for you? It's going to be all right. I'll make it. <laughs> okay, let's go at it. 
Lucky landing. Faster, 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 faster. Let's uh, catch this great moment again in slow motion. Oh yeah, let's. How you feel? All right. You hurt yourself, did you? No. God. What happened? Maybe mom. What happened? Couldn't get going fast enough. Two bigger bearings. Yeah. When are you going to try it again? Next Monday. Next Monday. Okay, we'll look for you there. All right, thanks. <laughs> that was uh, young Terry. He made a valiant effort. Yeah. Didn't quite make it this time, but as he said, he'll be back next Monday. <laughs> Barbara Boyd for the news, Channel 6. <laughs> too big of barons. Just too big of barons. Just uh yeah. Too big of barons. Didn't quite make I you know what it really was? It was too much hair. Too much wind resistance, man. He his hair. He just he caught he's got way too much wind. That's what that's what it was. Yeah. Too much, too much wind. Yep. What do you guys want for Christmas? You know what I want? Um, I want an evil Knievel stunt cycle. That's what I want. I want an evil Knievel stunt cycle. Let's do you remember the evil Knievel stunt cycle? Those things are freaking cool. I actually had one when I was a kid. You remember those things? I'm going to share it with you now. Check this out. Oh, man, those are the days. Christmas isn't even the same anymore. I don't know how kids even get excited about Christmas. They don't have stuff like this anymore, do they? No, it's all video games. I want this for Christmas. This is Evil Knievel and the Evil Knievel shock absorbing stunt cycle. You can make him do wheelies, backstands, even midair somersaults. <laughs> and for that big jump, here's Evil up and over that four foot ditch. Mine never did it that good. Evil Knievel sold separately or with the Evil Knievel stunt cycle from Ideal. Yeah. <laughs> I I had that thing and it would like it would do it, but it never landed well. And it would never like he'd always fall off. And the evil Knievel guy, the the action figure, he'd always fall off and stuff. It was just was always better on TV. Always better. Never as good in real life. But it was still cool. And I kept trying. I kept trying. It was fun. Anyway, guys, um, we're going to wrap it up for tonight because it's almost, it's coming up on about 8.30. So with that, I'm grateful for everyone spending your time here with me this evening and with the Maverick family. And I will be back tomorrow night. Might be a later broadcast start tomorrow night. 
because I have an appointment late in the day. I'm not sure if I'm going to get back in time for a 6 p.m. start. I'll try, but if I'm not here at 6, I'll be here at 7 p.m. Tomorrow night, Eastern Standard Time. On the flip side. This has been a Maverick Multimedia Productions.